Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is David. I'm the liturgist here at the church, but I'm preaching this morning. If you're wondering why we're doing the tag team here. Uh, and it's a great privilege for me to be preaching this morning on Palm Sunday. Uh, such a wonderful celebratory moment uh, in the history of our faith, in the liturgical year, to be able to uh, share the message with you today. Uh, Palm Sunday comes, the name of it comes from this moment when Jesus arrives into Jerusalem and he's welcomed uh, by people who are praising him and they're laying down palm branches uh, at his feet as he enters into the city. Uh, we have our palm branches here uh, behind us. And just this theme got me thinking about palm trees. Uh, we have a very special relationship with palm trees here in Southern California. Uh, they're everywhere. Uh, even as I was working on my sermon, I'd look out my window and I saw the palm trees lining the streets. If you were to go out this building and look down the streets, you'd see palm trees uh, above all of the buildings. Uh, of course, it's funny, as many of you probably know, that there are no palm trees that are native to Southern California. Uh, and so that means every single palm tree you see is a descendant from one that was imported from somewhere else. Uh, they are all there on purpose. Uh, They're all there as ornamental trees. The palm tree does really little for us otherwise. Uh, we don't get any fruit from them. We don't get any shade from them. Uh, but they do look great. Uh, and that's why they're here. They were first brought here by Spanish missionaries uh, as decorative trees, uh, largely in part because of their connection to the story of Palm Sunday, that the uh, missionaries chose to bring them here. Later in the history of Southern California, especially in the history of Los Angeles, uh, they started to become uh, landscaped more and more with palm trees because people who were building the city here wanted to present an image an image of Los Angeles as the promised land, as some kind of exotic Mediterranean paradise, some oasis near the desert. Uh, and so they started putting these palm trees uh, everywhere. Now, you could be cynical when you understand this, that it's just another example of the stereotype of Los Angeles as fake, is all about image. However, I think, I, I like the palm trees, so I'm glad they're here. Uh, and I think it's also natural for us to want to beautify and transform our surroundings in this world. I think you could say it's part of God's original plan for humanity to partner with him in transforming this world. That he gave us creative dominion over to transform alongside his will. However, we've seen throughout history that often our attempts to transform this world into paradise when they are not in accordance to God's will always seem to fail. Even the palm tree uh, has failed to make Southern California paradise. Uh, when I think about this idea, it reminds me of one of my favorite books. It's a book uh, from Los a Los Angeles writer uh, from the 1930s. Uh, it's a book called Ask the Dust by the writer John Fonte. 
And he writes this story about a struggling writer who has come from the, the cold uh, winter of the, the Midwest into Los Angeles, seeking the promised land, seeking success as an artist. And we see him struggle uh, in this Depression-era landscape uh, when he finds out Los Angeles isn't everything he hoped it would be. And there's a moment where he's sitting in his rundown downtown LA apartment and he looks out the window and he says this, through that window, I saw my first palm tree, not six feet away. And sure enough, I thought of Palm Sunday and Egypt and Cleopatra. But the palm was blackish at its branches, stained by carbon monoxide coming out of the Third Street Tunnel. Its crusted trunk choked with dust and sand that blew in from the Mojave and Santa Ana deserts. And we have this image of our inability to transform the desert into paradise through purely human means. We just seem to be unable to do it. And that's how we turn our gaze into this story of Jesus in his triumphal entry on that original Palm Sunday, because I think we have an image then of how the world can be transformed, how what is often a world of struggle, a desert, can be transformed into the kingdom under the feet of Jesus. And that's what we see in this story, how Jesus miraculously transforms the world we live in. But we also see how we get to join in on that redemptive, transformational work when we surrender our lives and wills to Jesus and recognize him as the king above all kings. And before we read that story, will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your presence here. We, as we read this story about your entry into Jerusalem, we just invite you to enter this room now. We invite your Holy Spirit to be on our hearts and on our minds as we read about you coming to establish your kingdom in this world on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, I'll be reading this story of the triumphal entry as it's written in the book of Luke. Uh, this is Luke chapter 19. Uh, so here we go. It starts in verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. 
When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. It's this wonderful story of Jesus arriving in his authority as king and being recognized. And as I first read it, knowing I'd be preaching on Palm Sunday, I was struck by a specific moment. And it's this moment where the people watching him come in start to lay down their cloaks. They take their outer cloaks off and they throw them on the colt that Jesus is going to sit on before he sits on it. And then as he starts to make his way, they start spreading their cloaks on the road, and an image started to be communicated to me through this story. As these people are laying down their cloaks, that the road to the kingdom is paved by what we lay down. You see, in the story, we see every move Jesus makes here entering the city is preceded by the people laying down their cloaks, laying them on the donkey, laying them on the dirt road, and ultimately, I think this is an important message about how we can participate in Jesus' transformative work in the world and also how we can allow Jesus to transform us when we're willing to lay down our cloaks. And the first part of this process, as we see in the story, of course, is to recognize Jesus as our king. That's something that they are successful in doing as he enters the city. They chant, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. They recognize that authority and kingship in Jesus. Just as we individually, as a church, as Christians need to do. Sometimes I wonder if that's a hard metaphor for us as modern Americans. Jesus talks a lot about a kingdom. We don't have kingdoms here. We don't have kings. That's the whole point of America. The whole great experiment of America was to do away with the aristocratic hierarchies of the old world, to create something new. And so sometimes it's hard for us to understand what a good king who has power over everything could look like. But I think we understand that desire. I think every four years as a new president is elected or we have elections, we are hoping that this new person can change things, can bring in a new era of peace and prosperity. And they'll tell us often that they can. And so we'll place our hopes on the shoulders of imperfect humans and hope that they have the power to change this world. And time and time again, we see how they fail us. No human being is going to usher in the kingdom. 
But I think there's a good seed at the heart of this desire because what we have is the desire for a king. We see the corruption in this world, we see the pain, and we want someone who has the power to change it, to redeem it. And what this story here is telling us is that we have that person in Jesus Christ. The people recognized it as he came into the city. They recognized his authority over their lives. And Jesus wanted to make sure they understood that message, that he was coming as king. We know this because he takes certain steps to align himself with a very specific prophecy that prophesied the coming of the king. And this comes from the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 9, Zechariah, an Old Testament prophet, living in a time when Israel was under foreign power, prophesied that there would one day be a king who would establish his kingdom of peace over the entire world. And he wrote this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now Jesus purposefully takes the steps to communicate to his people that king that was foretold is me. When he says, go get that colt, it's time to fulfill this prophecy. He's making a communication that demonstrates his kingship, not just over Israel, but as we see in Zechariah here, that his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus is making a point here. I'm not just here as a political leader. I am here to redeem the world. And so the people recognize it. They lay down their cloaks. They shout praises to him and call him king. And when they're able to do that, they're able to hand over their aspirations for the future, their own beliefs that they have control over their circumstances, and lay them at the feet of Jesus. Because when we recognize Jesus' authority over our lives, then we're able to release control over our circumstances. This feeling like we need to work so hard to control every aspect of life is handed over to Jesus. We're given the ability to be obedient to his voice. We see this in the story. When Jesus starts coming into the city, he gives his disciples commands to follow through with. He says, go to the village ahead of you and enter it, and you'll find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. We see him commanding his disciples. And if you want any explanation, tell them I said so. And we understand that he is assuming the authority and voice of a king 
And Luke actually goes into detail then showing them do it. They go. They find the colt. Someone says, what are you doing with my colt? And they say, the Lord needs it. And they get it. It almost feels repetitive in the story, but we get this idea that maybe Luke is emphasizing Jesus told them to do it, and they did it. And not only are they then able to do the will of God, but they get to participate in the specific fulfilling of this prophecy. You know that prophecy from Zechariah about the cult? I went and got that cult. I was able to play a part in what God is doing. And the whole crowd gets to do this as well. I feel like this is one of the central metaphors in this story, at least for this sermon, that the crowd lays down their cloaks. They take their cloaks off. They lay it on the donkey. They lay it on the dirt road. They take what they have on their backs and they lay it down at the feet of Jesus as an act of sacrifice and obedience, as an act of them releasing their own individual control and power over the world and giving it to Jesus. And what I think happens next is important. When they do that, when they lay their cloaks down on the ground, Jesus transforms their cloaks. We have a dirt road leading into Jerusalem that's suddenly transformed into a king's road. Everything they lay down, every cloak, every palm branch is transformed into a cobblestone paving the road to the kingdom of heaven. And these people are able to take part in that work. And the road is transformed by cloaks and branches into the red carpet of a king. Jesus, using our sacrifice, what we lay down to pave the road to the kingdom. This is what God does. He transforms. He changes the world around us. We have to believe in not only his power to do that, but in his will and desire to do that. And once we do, we see he's been doing it all along. God transforms. He transformed the void into our reality, into paradise. As we follow the story of the people of God, we see Moses, see the burning bush, and God says, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground, and the ground is transformed. When Moses goes up to the mountain and he sees God's feet, it says, under God's feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. What a wonderful image of where God walks, the world is transformed. And we get to witness it and be a part of it. The natural world transformed. Jesus tells the Pharisees, if these people aren't going to cry out, then the stones will. I transform everything. That's what Jesus does. We see it in his own ministry. He transforms water into wine, the sick into the healthy, the blind into the seeing, the living from the dead. You see, we have 
a king who redeems and resurrects. In the book of John, before this moment even happens, before this triumphal entry, it's directly preceded by Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, showing this is what I do to this world, and this is what I'm riding in to do now. And that is ultimately what Jesus does. He resurrects, transforming the dead to the living. And isn't that the great promise we look forward to today as we enter into the Holy Week? As we get ready a week from now to celebrate that great moment that is the center point of our faith. That Jesus Christ rose from the dead and promises to resurrect us. This is the gospel, the story of Easter, the great plan of God. Jesus transforming not only this world, but transforming us. The people in this story are transformed when Jesus walks into their lives. The way the New Revised Standard Version has it is as he rode rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. I like that phrase. They kept spreading their cloaks as if they had no choice. In the presence of Jesus, we are transformed. That is the gospel. We're transformed into workers of his kingdom, partners in his creation. We are transformed from whatever state we are in. Sick, sad, worried. We're transformed into sons and daughters of God, adopted into the embrace of a loving father, resurrected, from the dead to the living. And that is the gospel. And the other part of the gospel is that we get to take part in this transformative work. When we lay down our cloaks before the feet of the king, we get to become part of the kingdom work he has to do. The great living theologian N.T. Wright says, God has committed himself ever since creation to working through his creatures, in particular, through his image-bearing human beings. God has a lot of work he wants to do, but he wants to do it with us. We see that. Jesus could have rode in by himself conquering Jerusalem, but he wants us to be there doing it with us. He wants to transform us by making us part of his work. N.T. Wright likens it to building a cathedral. God has the blueprint for the cathedral. The cathedral will be built. The kingdom of heaven will be built. But don't you want to lay a stone in that cathedral? Because he's inviting you to become part of this work. The great application from this text is that to do that, we need to lay down our cloaks. Whatever pretense of control we have over this world, we need to lay down at the feet of Jesus. We need to lay down our cloaks. If you want to become part of Jesus' mission to transform our world, lay down your cloak. 
and give up control of your life to the flow of Jesus' kingdom of mercy and love. If you want to find the will of God and the purpose for your life, lay down your cloak. Make Jesus the king of your life. If what you have on you is heavy with the weight of sin and regret, if your life is made heavy by sadness and worry, you're invited to lay it down, to lay down your cloak before the feet of Jesus. And his promise is to transform you as he does this entire world. So let's take a moment to pray for that work to be done, to pray for Jesus to let us lay down our cloaks at his feet with the promise that he will transform us. Let's pray. King Jesus, we recognize your authority over our lives. We recognize that you are a God of love and mercy, that you want us to be part of your work, adopted into your family and transformed. And so I pray over everyone in this building, if you are able to recognize that you're carrying something that you don't need, that you don't need the weight of sin, you don't need the weight of sadness, just pray that Jesus would be with you now and say, lay down your cloak and give it to me. May each of us find what we need to lay down so that we can start walking on the road with Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.